Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' cold coffee can be brewed in your Keurig coffee maker and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's cold K-cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today we're talking with Brad Thor. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author and multi-award winning author of 21 novels. He's also a member of the Homeland Security Analytic Red Cell Unit, where he and other creative minds are tasked with anticipating possible threats to our country. He shadowed black ops teams in Afghanistan. And as Newsweek wrote of him, anyone who thinks the only thing we have to fear is fear itself should meet Brad Thor. <laughs> I love that line, Brad. Welcome to the show. It's <laughs> a good one. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be with you. And fittingly, your cocktail today is the Revolver, which I'm very excited about. Sort of a twist on a Manhattan. Oh, you've got yeah. yours ready to go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch up and pour mine here. So basically, <laughs> yeah, I got mine ready to go. It's uh, It's bourbon. so dark this morning, you can't even see the orange in it. So <laughs> I know. And so just so you know, I, I know it's supposed to come with a burnt orange garnish. I'm not going to flame things up here in serious. I'm still kind of new at serious. I don't want to... Get, yeah, uh, set the sprinklers off and have an evacuation. No, right. I, I actually, I found at uh, Trader Joe's, a uh, they have these orange slices that are already sliced in, in a package and they've got a little sugar on them and stuff. The You can do the burnt orange if you want to do that, you know, just a little bit lighter underneath the peel. I like these slices from uh, Trader Joe's, so I've been experimenting. But yeah, bourbon, uh, coffee liqueur, two ounces of bourbon, preferably uh, bullet uh bourbon is what the original uh, architect of the cocktail said so two ounces of bullet bourbon uh half ounce of coffee liqueur a couple splashes of orange bitters and then um uh flamed uh flame orange peel all right i've got uh orange going in and the bitters are in and it's good it's a nice you know, I, I, my dad was always a big fan of the manhattan uh so am i this is just kind of a fun twist you're getting the vermouth out you're putting kalua yeah or whatever it is in there and it's a combination of flavors this was invented uh, according to legend in 2004 in san francisco by a bartender who was really into mixology and uh it, it is a nice twist on the, the manhattan it's I, I never would have i was not a kalua fan my yeah. uh my father-in-law is but this actually is a good putting the, the bourbon with the kalua is good stuff in the orange is there actually caffeine in coffee liqueur in, in Kahlua? because this could be a great one to sort of kick the night off with a little caffeine yeah i you know what i don't know i figure if there, listen it's obviously going to be anytime you're dealing with liqueur you're going to start getting the calorie content up i know you're mm -hmm. health conscious i'm a fitness guy and all that kind of stuff so i think that's why everybody does the uh the espresso martinis 
that right. that's really where the kick is. I don't yeah. think there's a lot of uh, caffeine in Kahlua, to be honest with you, but it's a great taste. Well, let's give this a shot. Cheers. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Cheers. That's really good. Surprising, right? Yeah. You wouldn't think putting bourbon and Kahlua together would be that good, but the the orange, the orange bitters is a really nice, it just ties it all together. I like it. It does. It has all the, it's a little less sweet than a Manhattan sometimes. Like getting that sweet vermouth mm-hmm. out instead of, and, and bringing the Kahlua in is, that's nice. Yeah, I love the name too, as a thriller Never writer. Fall, I mean, it's classic Scott Harvath <laughs> stuff. It's great. So you were born in Chicago and I read your dad was a Marine. Were you, were you moving around a lot as a kid? No, my uh, the Marines were my dad's ticket out of the south side of Chicago and got him into college on the GI Bill. So my dad had already been in the Marine Corps and was out by the time he met my mom. My mom had been a flight attendant for TWA uh, based in Manhattan, actually. She used to fly uh, New York, Paris, Paris, New York, and she moved back home to Chicago. So they both met uh when they were done seeing the world really he was done seeing the world with the marines and had gone into the private sector and uh met my mom who was done seeing the world with twa oh so chicago is really where you spent all the years you guys are pretty settled in there and then you know unlike some other writers we've talked to on the show i mean many many folks come to writing as sort of a second act and they've done it you seem to know early on you studied creative writing at usc undergrad I did. My dad wanted me to study uh, business administration, and I started as a business administration uh, major, but I didn't like it. I had all these creative juices and everything, so I studied creative writing in film and television production. Mm -hmm. And then when I got out of USC, uh, I ended up uh, eventually creating and getting on the air for public television a travel series called Traveling Light. So uh, like my parents who both saw saw the world in their first careers, so did I. I got to do that uh, via travel show. So that was pretty cool. But I'd always wanted to be a novelist. That was the, even all the hard work of setting up a TV show and getting it on coast to coast on public television, that was avoidance behavior. I was afraid of failure. What if I wrote a manuscript and it wasn't any good? Nobody liked it. And it wasn't until my honeymoon that my wife asked me, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? I was doing TV at the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, okay, when we get home from the honeymoon, you got to make that uh, dream come true. Oh, that's so a couple funny. hours we, protected time. We have okay. I have a similar story. My wife was encouraging me on a trip. We were in the Bahamas somewhere, and I just finished reading Nelson DeMille's Gold Coast. And I know Nelson blurbed oh, your such de- a good book. Yeah, that's a such classic. a good book. And I know he blurbed yeah. your your debut. Uh, he did. Lucerne, he did. Which, is, yeah. which is a huge. Which was it would, for me was great because I've been a long time fan of Nelson's. So. Yeah. That great, but the Gold Coast is a great book, and then the I think it's Guest House or Gatehouse is the he eventually did Gatehouse, a sequel yeah. to it. It yeah. just so damn good, and he's so funny. Yeah, I mean you know him in person. Uh, I, I know him via correspondence, but if he's any anywhere half as funny as his characters are, he's oh totally, he, he has now. that quick wit, totally irreverent, you know, amazing observations of what's going on right in the room around you. You know, he takes it all in and has a has an awesome take on it. So funny. And I know his wife because his wife used to be in the book business, Sandy. Sandy, right. So I had met Sandy years and years ago when she used to live in Colorado, uh, Mm. when she was in the book business. So just a very super nice woman and just I can't think of a nicer couple. Yeah. So you you, uh, had about a 10-year period between college and studying under, I think, T.C. Boyle. That's pretty cool. Great writer. uh, He had World's End, I looked up, was 1987. You know, sort of his wow. big book. So that must have come out maybe just after you were there or, or maybe around your... Actually, just as I was coming in. So I graduated high school in the spring of 1987. Mm. 
So I took the fall semester off and then went to USC spring semester of that next year. So that was uh, what, like 80, 88, 89 is when I... Yeah, 88. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and Tom was fantastic, a great, great teacher. And for those of you who haven't read T.C. Boyle, you may have seen one of his books was turned into the movie with Matthew Broderick and Anthony Hopkins called The Road to Wellville about all, uh, Battle Creek, Michigan and Kellogg and the sanatorium there uh, for for health and kind of all these interesting cures. Mm -hmm. So that's a and if you've ever watched the unwrapped uh, show on the Food Network about kind of the development of Kellogg's cornflakes and things like that, that it's an interesting story that revolves around that. Oh, nice. So then. 2002, so about a 10-year gap from, uh, or so, from uh, college to your debut when uh, Lions mm -hmm. of Lucerne comes out. So in, in that period, you did, I guess, so I, I stand corrected in a way, you did kind of have a first act in TV and and uh, and then got going on the first book. Yeah, so I came out of college. I had saved money. I was working in LA while I was going to the University of Southern California, and I graduated. and A friend offered me a room in her apartment in Paris, and I figured I'd do something, Doug, that no American had ever done. I would move to Paris and write a novel. Had never been done before by an American. <laughs> I figured I'd be the first. Uh, anyway, I got a couple chapters into writing that novel, and I thought, oh my God, this is the most solitary, lonely business in the world. I don't want to do this. And it was just that voice I think we all have inside of us saying, you know what? It's not worth the embarrassment. What if you fail? You know, what if you don't succeed? What if nobody likes the book? You don't get it published. And it was easier to run away from what was my my life's ambition. And so that money that I had saved working in college, I traveled, uh, traveled around Europe and everything, came back. My dad's, uh, my dad, somebody in my dad's company had left. And so I stepped in to replace the person. It was an admin person and I knew all the paperwork in my dad's business and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And my dad was really cool. My dad said, listen, I'll let you run your television production company off your cell phone out of this office as long as you do the work that I'm paying you to do. And so I did that. So it was my side hustle to get the TV show going and got it going, got public television to pick it up. It's not that simple. It's a lot of work. Uh, but yeah, so that's it's kind of a 10-year from leaving USC to the publication of my first book. I did yeah. two seasons of shows. Took me several years to get everything off the ground, but I ended up doing two seasons of episodes for public television of a show called Traveling Light. I believe that travel made me a better American. Seeing my mm -hmm. country from abroad, I think, made me appreciate what I have. Also I, showed me there's different ways of doing things. I totally so agree. A, but between that, like studying history... And traveling the world are two great perspectives setters that everyone should be doing more of because we, we get so myopic in our view. We, we can get so hysterical over certain things. But when you see a little bit more and understand more history, I think you can you can just have a, a wiser perspective on things. Yeah, and that's why I created the show because there was uh, Rick Steves' Travels in Europe, uh, which I think is still airing on public television. That was the kind of the only travel show, and that was geared for people my parents' age at the time. And I wanted to tell younger Americans, 18 to 34-year-olds, don't wait until you're retired to see the world. Do it now. It's not that expensive. Here's all the hacks and secrets and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I had a great cameraman from Long Island. Uh, originally from the Chicago suburbs who lived in Long Island. And uh, he's the guy that got the Nancy Kerrigan footage. He was working for my brother's uh, 
company my brother was at, a sports company, when Tanya Harding had Nancy Kerrigan whacked in the knee, and he and she's bending over, going, "Why me? Why me?" Holding her knee, and he he calls himself an old news Nazi. All these press people were standing around, and he's elbowing him out of the way with his camera so he can get this footage, which I think they licensed over the years for more than a million dollars, oh and Gene gosh. got it. So, and he was great. He was, I thought there's no way I'll ever get this really successful cameraman to be my cameraman. Uh, And he was going through a divorce and he didn't want to be at his house in Long Island. And I, I called him for a referral. I said, do you know any young up and coming guys? He's like, well, what's the gig? And I told him and he said, I'll take it. I'm a young up and coming guy. Yeah. He wanted out of the house so badly because of his divorce. He said, I don't care what it pays. I'll take the job. So I got this great cameraman who did audio for me. It was just the two of us. And we traveled around Europe and did these shows and got a lot of accolades and did very well in the ratings and stuff. And it was a, it was a lot of fun well, back in my single day. No, no surprise that you have that TV back. You're so telegenic and, and such a great communicator. I, you know, of course, I've seen you on basically every news network there is from from the the big nets to the to the small cable nets and uh um have a great presence with that so i guess from your from your honeymoon scott harvath now emerges in uh 2002 you have your debut and i saw not only was it blurbed by nelson but i think dan brown was on there and yeah and uh let's blurb this thing i have a copy here vince flynn Mills. vince flynn yeah. the legend yeah um and i also read that you set out not thinking that you would write. So, so listeners know Scott Harvath is a former Navy SEAL. I mean, I, I think all our listeners may already know this, but I'll say it anyway. Retired Navy mm-hmm. SEAL turned covert operative and just, you know, gets the job done in, in short. But you did not set out thinking you'd write a series of novels with Scott Harvath. It was, it was, I think, after the huge done. success gonna... of your debut that your agent and publisher were like, well, what we need to know what happened to Scar Harvath next. We need another one of these. Yeah. So I I I remain a huge fan of Michael Crichton, and mm-hmm. so I love the uh, I've read so many Crichton books, and I love the idea of being able to start fresh with a new cast of characters and including mm-hmm. a brand new protagonist. So when I went, when my editor said and my agent said, "Okay, well, what's the next book you're going to do?" and I had this whole thing planned, they're like, "No, no, 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 no. You got to you've got to bring Harvath back. <laughs> right, we're not leaving uh, money on the table here." <laughs> exactly. It's partly the business model in the publishing industry, but um, they 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 asked me a really good question, Doug, and I and it had a profound impact on me. They said, "Listen, Brad, how many times have you walked into the bookstore, picked up a book by a favorite author that's got a character you like, and maybe the setting is some part of the world that you know or you don't like or whatever, but you're going to buy the book because you want to go on a ride with this character again. You want another adventure mm-hmm. with this character. They become like family to you." And I said, "Okay." Boom, the light bulb went on. I said, I get it. You people, people like the character. They want to go on another ride with Scott Harvath. And mm-hmm. so I continued on with Scott Harvath. But that was that pivotal moment. I wasn't going to do him as a series character. Yeah. Every book was going to be different, like Crichton. Well, maybe you'll find time to uh to branch out. So I'd love to see you do that. You're such a talented writer. It'd be fun to to see both. I want more Harvath and I want to also see what else. Because as, as you mentioned with Michael Crichton, I'm also a huge fan of his. I he did such a variety. He did historical fiction like The Great Train ah. Robbery. He wrote ER yes. for television. And he was Congo, always in the zeitgeist. You know, like book. he captured yeah. what was happening slightly ahead of time. Disclosure came out, which was about office place harassment. Before that was a huge thing. He wrote Rising Sun about Rising Japanese Sun. businessmen, you know, buying up all mm-hmm. our real estate, you know, before that was even even Jurassic Park was largely about chaos yeah. theory, which was very zeitgeisty at that time. 
He's yeah, a terrific no, writer. He was, he, he, he was absolutely amazing. And so, uh, yeah, I, I always throw out Congo, which is one of my favorite books by him, yeah. uh, which I just I, I absolutely love. So, yeah, when I talk about the business of books and the fact that if you write separate books with separate protagonists, uh, you're, you're creating separate silos of IP that you can option and sell to Hollywood, uh, or you can continue with the same protagonist all the way through. So the business of Hollywood has been changing. There's no way two decades ago I could have known that right now we'd be in the golden age of television. Movie stars would never hawk gin or perfume or or whisper like Matthew McConaughey behind the wheel of a, what does he do, Lincoln? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, you wouldn't have seen that. You wouldn't have known that that was coming. And at the end of the day, because I'm from the Midwest and my parents are both business people, I have always said that my ultimate responsibility is to the reader. So you can't make more time. It is a finite commodity. So when somebody trusts you with their time, you want to give them the best story, the best ride that you're capable of, because they can go out and make more money, uh, but they can't make that time. That's time they could have spent with their spouse, their kids, with their friends, whatever it might be. So you want to give them the best ride you're capable of. And we got so much feedback after the lines of Lucerne, my first mm -hmm. book, that people wanted to keep riding with Harvath that I wanted to meet that need. I, I realized, okay, I've got a customer base now with this new right. venture that I'm in as an author, and I want those people to be happy. And that's always been my North Star throughout my career as a writer is keeping the readers happy. Yeah. So and, and, I, I read reviews. I listen to what they say, what they want less of, more of, whatever. It's, yeah. you know, and, and mission accomplished because, and not only are you succeeding in that, but you have, you know, speaking of this golden age of television, you have more competition for their time, for their hours. They can watch a gorgeous beautiful documentary or whatever on Netflix, or they can sit down and read a book. And I love that you're doing it in such a compelling way that people turn off Netflix and crack a book. And I think one of the reasons you're so successful in doing that is not only are you giving them a great ride in terms of the action adventure pulse pounding thing, but it's an, it's an education. I, so I, I read your, your 21st, I think 22 is on the way, but I read your 21st rising tiger. Mm -hmm. And it was like reading an Intel brief on India, Pakistan, and China. And you you know it's real, and it's and it's artfully and and you know skillfully woven into this pulse pounding story. So it's not like you're reading some dry intel brief, but you're getting all of that as you're reading this incredible story. And I have to, without having to kill me after you tell me, where are you getting all the intel? You know what? I'm a voracious consumer of news, and I spend a lot of time with people in the special operations community, the intelligence community, the diplomatic corps. I ask. So my big thing is, is I buy a lot of pitchers of beer and a lot of steak dinners, and then I shut up and I listen. And if I if I ask any questions at all, Doug, I like to ask what keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? And it's funny, as you and I are doing this uh uh, interview slash podcast now tomorrow morning I, I just got booked for radio because uh, a host at a station down in Texas is a fan uh, former congressman and wants to talk about the whole Chinese spy balloon thing mm -hmm. because in 2010 I did a book about China using balloons over the United States and he's like oh my gosh you know that was 12 13 which, years which ago title how was did that? you see that coming act of war act of war okay yeah. So uh, when we traded Taliban out of uh, Gitmo for uh, Bo Bergdahl, the American mm -hmm. soldier who went AWOL and got captured by the Taliban or handed himself over to the Taliban, uh, I had done a book prior to that saying it's starting out with us giving up five 
uh, Taliban out of Gitmo, which is the exact same number. I got lucky when I picked the number, but um, there's certain things that if you pay attention to, you can kind of sense what might be coming next. Mm-hmm. And so you talked about that quote I got from Dan Brown on the lines of Lucerne. Uh, Dan is one of the things Dan Brown has been kind enough to say about my books is that they're as current as tomorrow's headlines. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff I put in the books that you'll see happening tomorrow, like this whole India China thing I think is is really fascinating and I think we're going to hear more about it as time goes on. We're we're watching Ukraine right now. Uh I've got Ukraine as the setting for the book that'll be coming out this summer and that's been the wildest thing as an author to do to write a book in real time yeah. when something's unfolding. Uh, you know, is China going to supply, uh, at least publicly, are we going to be able to talk about in the media that China's supplying weapons to the Russians, uh, all, all this stuff. And it's been probably one of the biggest challenges for me as an author, but I like that. I'd get bored if it was easy. So I'm constantly looking to up the difficulty, whether the reader sees it or not, you know that if you drop, you know, 30 bucks for a hardcover, my new hardcover this summer, it's going to be worth your $30. Oh, I'm totally. gonna make sure I, I you felt get- like I got a, a- so much information on India, Pakistan, China, and, and Rising Tiger. But it's funny. It's, Which it's, doesn't sound sexy. It doesn't. I, and that's the thing. I mean, I did a book about the Federal Reserve in Hidden Order years ago and had that as the background because I wanted people to know the Federal Reserve was about as federal as Federal Express mm-hmm. and kind of weave in the history of it. And that's the key. Elmore Leonard, Doug, uh, and you may know this as a fellow uh, writer, but Elmore Leonard was famous for telling young writers, here's my best piece of advice for you. Two pieces of advice. Don't start with the weather. It was a dark and stormy night. And number two, leave out the parts that people skip. Mm -hmm. So for me, I want people to have an edge of their seat, white knuckle thrill ride. But when they close a Brad Thor novel, I want them to be smarter. I want them to know a little bit more about different corners of the world and why these corners are worth paying attention to and why our role is important and all this kind of stuff. I'm not writing textbooks. I'm writing entertainment, you know, crisp, short cinematic chapters, but that's part of the fun. And so it's, it's great for me, bottom line, great for me to hear that you felt with oh, last year's book, you weave Tiger, it in magic. I, th- I think another Elmore Leonard line is people rarely skip the dialogue. They they skip all the sort of filler in between and the setup, you know. But uh, y- your your books are are terrific in that way. They they just, they capture. There's that other saying for novelists: if you can write about current events, you better write quickly. Yes, and but you're predictive. Line. You're you're ahead of the of, of the game. So by the time we're reading it, like it might actually be the headline because you're you're six months ahead of the rest of the world. And that was the whole red cell thing. When the government invited me in to join the analytic red cell unit, yeah. the whole thing there was- That, that was my next question. What What is that and what were you doing there? So uh, like SEAL Team 6, it's not called SEAL Team 6 anymore. They just changed the name so they can deny that it exists. So um, shortly after 9-11, before the 9-11 commission was ever impaneled, uh, the United States government realized that uh, we got caught with our creative pants down on 9-11, that we were not Mm -hmm. thinking outside the box. And all nations are guilty of this, that they fight the war in their rearview mirror, that, you know, there's a certain amount of one eye on the road, one eye behind you and thinking that maybe the next thing's going to look like the last thing did. Uh, Although tell that to the French and the Mangione line and all this kind of stuff. So if you know history, you know, it's not going to be exactly the same. Um, It's going to change, but we weren't thinking creatively enough. So God bless, uh, and I never thought I would say this, but I say it in this capacity, God bless the United States government for 
having the courage to do something different, to think outside the box. And what they did was, and this is probably the most aggressive forward-thinking program, at least that I'm aware of in the United States government. They said, we are going to bring in creative thinkers from outside D.C., and we are going to start brainstorming what targets at home and abroad might be, what attack methodology might be at home and abroad and all this kind of stuff. And they brought in guys like me, Michael Bay, the director of the Transformers yeah. movies, and all these creatives in so there would be kind of freeform sessions where they'd say, what do you think? Where do you think we might be? And then there were times where they were giving us like little snippets of stuff. And it felt like they had like a few puzzle pieces and they didn't have the box, you know, mm -hmm. so they didn't know what the puzzle was supposed to look like. There's a bunch of pieces missing. They'd be like, you got this cell phone from Karachi. We've got one Air Jordan that washed ashore in, uh, you know, Cote d'Ivoire, all this kind of weird stuff. And like, how would you knit this stuff together? It was really cool. And they actually had great people in the program running it because anytime you get creatives together, it's like herding cats, yeah. you know, to, to get people to kind of be quiet long enough to let the, the somebody else speak and all this kind of stuff. But it was it was really interesting. And to, I, there's only one scenario they ever published that I'm allowed to talk about. So one of one of the attacks that I predicted uh, for them happened outside the US and it made the news around the world. And I said, can I go on? Can I go on TV? Because I'm getting calls about this. And can I say, hey, yeah, not only did we talk about it in the red cell, but I helped develop this idea. And they said, no. I've always called the red cell unit the Las Vegas of government programs. What happens in the red right. cell stays in the red cell, <laughs> right. right? I can't put it in my books, anything like that. But the one thing they did publish that I'm allowed to talk about was they looked at how terrorists might take advantage of an approaching hurricane. So a lot of stuff happens in the run up to a hurricane. You've got people that get moved to shelters. So you've got them in tight in certain, you know, high school gymnasiums, things like that. And then we also take a lot of our first responder equipment and move it to marshalling yards outside the path of the storm. So uh, would those be vulnerable to attack? And that's the only time the Red Cell has ever publicized. This is the kind of stuff we look at. So that's what these you scary creative minds out there. You know, it, it reminds me of Ian Fleming was a, Ashley, a, a British intelligence, you know, British naval intelligence and then uh, author of James Bond novels. So there, there's a connection in in, uh, you know, and, and even freelanced and, and gave Kennedy some ideas of what he thought uh, the U.S. should do vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Castro in Cuba. So he was yeah, he was bottomless when it came to uh, creative ideas and how to do stuff. Yeah. And you're, you're right. It was British intelligence and and uh, undoubtedly uh, contributed some very good things. Uh, there's so many fascinating books on on Fleming. If anybody, uh, any of the audience is interested in the James Bond stuff, uh, you should look deeper into Ian Fleming as an author. Yeah. He's, he's an yeah. interesting. He was part of that Trout Memo, Mincemeat, Operation Mincemeat, World War II deception operation. I think Colin Firth did the movie recently. And and uh, uh, Ben McIntyre, I think, wrote wrote the book. But and I did something. I did a little kind of riff on that uh, in a book several years ago. Where a uh, so in Operation Mincemeat, the idea was you threw this body in. Uh, I think it was the Med, thinking it would wash up in Spain, and the Nazis mm -hmm. uh, Nazis would find it in Spain, but it would have a briefcase you know, handcuffed uh, to the wrist of the corpse and inside would be information that would be, It was a you fake know, invasion plan. They, there are two choices. So they said, we'll put the wrong one in this briefcase exactly. and then we'll do the other one.
Yeah, exactly. So I did a thing. There was a um, a, a laptop called the Laptop of Doom that the United States had been chasing for, uh, or they've been chasing the the owner of the Laptop of Doom. It was found in a in like a Al Qaeda safe house in Iraq, I believe it was years ago. And so you know, was this disinformation? Was it real? And so I spun that in along with the dead body, uh, particularly at the height of the migrant crisis of the migrants leaving North Africa and winding up on this little island uh, uh, that belongs to Italy. And so I wove the two together of, oh my God, this is the guy who owned the laptop. And was he on his way to Italy to light something up? Oh, there's something in that laptop that has to do with Italy. So that was kind of a, a an homage to uh, Mincemeat. Mincemeat and Ian Fleming. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating to see these old stories of how, you know, Intel really in that sort of turn of the century, pre-World War One era started coming into its own. I want to do a quick, uh, quick pivot to process because I think it's fun for listeners to sort of imagine Brad Thor and his, mm. you know, when he's when he's doing his thing. So, a couple quick questions: You write by hand or do you type it in? I type it. I, you know what? I got to tell you, Doug. Have you ever asked that question and got somebody that says they write by hand? Nelson Demille. Among many Nelson, others. Yeah. And he's got somebody who transcribes. Nelson yeah. is very old school in that sense. Uh, yeah. I grew up, you know, I mean, it started with DOS, but then went to Windows and everything. I can't imagine long handing stuff out with the way I move stuff around. And I want to know where's my word count because the deadline is steaming, da- streaming, <laughs> you know, is steaming down upon me. And I got to know, yeah. you know, am I getting close to my contracted length? I can't imagine. And all respect, particularly to Nelson, you're right, because he is the one guy I know of that does do it. But uh, there are a few others. My- I would say it's 70-30 type it in, but there are a lot of write-by-hand really? folks who've, who've been on the show, yeah. Wow. I'm one, okay. I, I, just, I was, someone sort of turned the tables on me with that question. I think Jennifer Egan turned the tables on me. And uh, I write fiction by hand, but nonfiction. My next book coming out is nonfiction. I, that one I typed in. As are we stable mates uh, now? Are we going to be published by the same publisher? That's right. We're, we're all, it's, it's the big Simon & Schuster family. I love it. Yeah. I did. I did hear something, and so that was one of the questions I didn't get to ask you before we started. But that's great. Yes. Congratulations! It comes out in September. Thank you. I'm very excited. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, how about uh, I see you're in this gorgeous setting. There's a nice sort of mm-hmm. bar behind you, and books on the shelf. Is that where you write, or do you write anywhere? So this here is off my office. So what you can't see behind the um, Behind the camera is my desk and a big, long conference table where Mm -hmm. I stack my uh, research materials and all that kind of stuff. So in here, if I spun the camera a little bit, there's a there's a couch right over here. So uh, a lot of times what I'll do is if I want to switch POV in the book, switch between storylines, I will grab my laptop and go sit on the couch uh, and work on it there. But uh, this is a fireplace right here. There's a TV above it. So this is this is kind of my relaxed space where I can put my feet up. Up, take a nap if I, you know, if I've like been burning the candle at both ends. But yeah, so everything everything happens here. It's this room and then the room behind the camera here okay. that I do all my. So work. if we're in Nashville and we stroll into some cute little cafe, we're not going to find you working on the next book. It's pretty much happening there. I'd never be able to concentrate. I'm too much of a people watcher. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and I'm also, you know, there's a lot of different things that I've done. Over my lifetime, a lot of interesting people I've spent time with, I could not focus on my manuscript and ignore 
you know, is somebody coming in to rob the place? I, I just, I can't drop my guard that thoroughly, yeah. which is what it requires for me to write. I have to be putting my mind into a, into a, you know, it's been likened what we do, Doug, to uh, creating order out of chaos. And that's true because there is no, there is no manual for how you write particularly yeah. fiction it can be it can be anything and for years i've made a joke uh saying i would never tell stephen king that his job is easy i have no idea what stephen king's process is like mm-hmm. i know that his his world that he creates is often very different from mine because kind of with horror and getting into the fantasy realm and stuff you can bend the rules you can create brand new rules i can't if I've got a guy using a weapon that does not actually was never right. ever yeah. made in that caliber, I'm going to hear from mainly be. Oh, you'll get or letters. Four. You get letters. You, you got it. You really have to stay. Worse, they yeah. show up on Twitter or Facebook. They show up on social <laughs> media to tell you you're wrong. So you get this yeah. public chipping away at your brand. So I, but but that's my that's my responsibility it is up to me to get those details right and that's part of my contract if you will a social contract with my readership is that i'm going to bust my ass to get every single detail right that i will make those letters uh, not necessary you don't need to come on social media and in fact i've had people there's a great expression and you probably know it um and i've had a handful of people after my last book uh come on social media to correct me about my french Okay, my French is not perfect. I grew up speaking French. My mom had to learn French for her TWA gig because back in the day, you had to speak the language of the route you were flying. And so my mom had to learn French for New York. I probably was Kennedy. Uh, so New York, Paris, Paris, New York. And then I went to French school with a uh, French order of nuns. We had French every day. But this is an expression that we use. And it's a it's a funny story that I'm not going to try to fully tell because I'll butcher the whole historic perspective. But the the term is pour encourager les autres, to encourage the others, okay? And basically what it is, is it's about a military leader who didn't press his advance hard enough. So when he got home, he got executed to encourage the others, to press harder. It's a tongue in cheek thing. And I used it correctly in the book. And I've had like three, four people pop up on social media reading it saying, no, 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 you use the French incorrectly. It should be to discourage the others. And I'm like, no, go search it online. It's actually tongue in cheek. Pour encourager les autres is a very funny, it's a it's a funny way. Of course, mm-hmm. we would normally say to discourage others from cowardice and battle, but it's yeah. it's actually the flip of that. So uh, if, if you come after me and you, you take a shot. You better be right. Right. Better and have if your you're right. Done. I'll tell yeah. you. I I will admit it, and I will thank <laughs> you because I make mistakes. I yeah. you can't. You you know I've written millions of words over my career, and I've made mistakes. And yeah. I and I appreciate it when if someone cares enough to take the time to show up on your social media to say, hey, there's a mistake. Mm-hmm. That's a valuable customer. Yeah, and, that's and a also, valuable customer. Exactly, they care. They're reading closely. They and you yes, know you're reaching a wide make, audience too. I was at a writer's festival a few weeks ago and I saw Anthony Doerr who wrote All the Light We Cannot See. and, and One of my all-time favorite books, by the way. I'm rereading it right now. Oh, that book is so beautiful. So beautifully written. Really, really yeah. powerful story. And he, he was saying he wrote you know, one of his books. I can't remember if it was that one or a different one, but you know, a certain kind of snail was on a beach somewhere in May. And he got letters like, that snail would never be on that beach in May, only October. Like that you're out of sea. You know? So he was like, you know, I thought I had it right, but you... But you know, for in your business, you're right. It's Stephen King. It's hard. It's fantasy. It's it's all supposed to be, you know, completely out of this. You out can't of this world. bury a dead cat and have it come back. Right. That's wrong. <laughs> Pet cemetery. It's a joke. What is he talking about? <laughs> um, 
That's fine. So uh, here's another one that's you're on the process side that you're either one or the other. Do you outline ahead of time or do you dive in? I'm a pantser. I am not an outliner. So back to Dan Brown. Okay. So Dan and I have the same agent. So Dan was at my publishing house. Dan was looking to uh, shake some things up. And Dan uh, Dan ended up signing uh, with my agent, Heidi Lang, mm-hmm. who is a great agent, a lovely lady. Uh, this was years ago. So Heidi had said, she's like, I know you agonized about plot points and all this kind of stuff, and you're so invested in it. Um, Dan's an outliner. And maybe Dan uh, would be willing to show you how he outlined. So I reached out to Dan and I, I, I joke that Dan invited me up to his house and he's going to show me the outline for Da Vinci. And he took me into his study and it was like Batman where he tipped the head off of Shakespeare, hit the button. The, the library bookcase slides back. He's got a key around his neck to open a steel door and we go downstairs <laughs> and then there's the outline. So, but no, Dan was really cool. And Dan showed me, he's such a generous guy. I've always loved Dan Brown. Um, and I was a huge fan before Da Vinci Code. In fact, I think mm-hmm. Angels and Demons is gotta be, if I had to pick my favorite Dan Brown book with the ambigrams and the 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 tight race around Rome, I, I, Angels and Demons is my all-time favorite Dan Brown book. And if yeah. you haven't read it, it's 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 so damn good. Um, but Dan shared with me the outline. So I got to see what made it into the book, uh, Da Vinci Code, and what didn't. Mm -hmm. which was kind of cool. So I went and I outlined a book and I got to tell you what, Doug, it took the passion right out of me for writing the book. Robert Frost once said, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. I want to have the same experience writing the book that you have reading it. And we have a joke in my house where when I come home at night, my wife can tell if it's a red wine night or a bourbon night by the look (laughs) on my face because I paint myself into corners. You know, one of the best pieces of advice that you can give writers after all the Elmore Leonard stuff that you and I earlier talked about was uh, take the first four or five things that pop into your head of what should happen next and discard them. So I'm constantly painting Harvath into corners and I'll finish up the day and not know how I'm going to get him out of it. And when Mm -hmm. I go home with that look on my face, it's a bourbon night because I'm really worried about it. My wife will say, you know what? Don't worry. You've, you know, this is what your 23rd novel. Now your your 22nd Harvath novel. Cause the one year I did two books, I did a Mm spinoff about an all female Delta force team. Uh, But she's like, you always figure it out. And and you do, you do. That's so interesting. I, so the you know there your your episode maybe twenty early twenties I can I don't even know the number of of shows we've done here, and I ask this question to every writer and it, and it, as you said earlier every writer is different, and some mm-hmm. writers have the same take you did I, I've never heard that Robert Frost quote which I love and some writers yeah, feel that same quote. way Lee Child is in your in your camp is like if I outline it, it just kind of takes some of the gas out of it you know I don't want to know what's happening next either and, and it's more exciting and that excitement comes through on the page. Others are obsessive outliners, have drafts. If they're, they'll do an outline and they'll write a chapter and they'll do it and they'll Patterson. redo the outline. And yeah, is Patterson? I didn't know that. He's, he's well, that's on the show, so allegedly that's how Patterson is able to work with all the co authors, is he does, you know, uh, I'm sure it was Michelangelo's publicist that said, when Michael looks at a block of marble, he can see the statue already inside it. He knows what it's going to look like. <laughs> I'm sure it's total bullshit that was used to promote Michelangelo to patrons throughout Italy and beyond. Um, and so I, you know, but having not worked with Patterson, I have no idea how extensive his outlines are. The 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 stuff you read in the press is it's sixty pages, it's eighty pages, you know. And then he hands it over to the co-writer. I mean, uh, that's a that's a lot of work. And God bless him. I mean, 
listen, Patterson has been so good for our industry. I, I make I make jokes about everybody. I, I I don't see this as being a competitive business because I'm not selling a car. James Patterson and I are not both trying to get you to buy a car that you're going to drive for the next 15 years and you're only going to buy one. Mm-hmm. There's 365 days in the year you yeah. can read lots of books. And I think that's what's made the business so enjoyable for me is that these are my colleagues. Yeah, it's so not, I don't it's not zero sum at all. I totally agree. We're just trying to get people in the bookstore. Anybody who's great gets yep. someone in the bookstore and then they're going to buy many rising books each tide. year. It yeah. lifts it lifts all boats. Of course. It lifts yeah, I, all I boats. Totally so agree. if somebody I mean Colleen Hoover is at my house now and Colleen Hoover has had like massive just crazy crazy success and that's great if people are reading. So mm-hmm. you know you talked about the competition earlier with Netflix and all that kind of stuff. It it's not only the competition, this is part and parcel of the competition. It takes a tremendous amount of self-discipline to sit down and finish a book. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm one of these crazy people. I've always got six books going at a time. It's just the way my mind works. I can't read just one book because Mm -hmm. I've bought like every day, there's more books showing up at the house and I feel like I got to get, you know, so I always have like six books next to the bed, a couple in the office and that kind of stuff. But again, I, I, anything that gets people reading, I think is a good thing. Um, and probably the one thing about reading, Doug, because I don't know this is a question that you you would have asked, but um, this is a, a little data point about reading that I've always been fascinated by as a parent, and you're, you're a parent and a fellow author, is you know we grew up hearing that if you want your kids to be great readers, that you need to read to them, mm-hmm. that that's the key. Well, when uh, when Freakonomics was written and they, they looked they into it- They you reading, right? They need to see you reading and they need to see books around the house, that that behavior, good for you. So you knew that data point. And I say that when I'm at writers conferences or whatever, and people are stunned. They, they, they just think if I read to my kids, no, 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 your kids need to see that you can set your phone down, turn off your laptop or your tablet and actually sit there with a book, whether it's on your nook or, or whatever. I, you know, I, they've even done studies that say you don't retain information off of an e-reader as well as you do on the printed page. There's something about the imperfection Mm -hmm. about ink on paper that forces your eyes to move a little bit. You retain more allegedly more information when you read read a hard, hard or soft cover book, paper, ink and paper. Yeah, so. I, I believe it. Well, now I'm thrilled to say, you know, now I'm doing this show. I, I'm, I'm reading Brad Thor, Rising Tiger. And I and, and, you know, the kids are like, hey, dad, I need the I'm like, dad's working. Dad's working oh, right now. I love now. that. I, <laughs> I love get to, that. Like, That's great. Follow, uh, follow, read all my favorite books and, and call it a job, which is which is very yeah. nice. So what, one other question I have for you on the process thing, because in terms of grabbing the reader, and you know, making sure they're reading your books and and not watching Netflix, there's sort of like a, you know, a, a need to to capture them right away, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I remember I went on on the Imus show, Don Imus, and God, I for, miss Don for my first I, novel. And he has this I, first I, I page almost... test. He's like, if if you don't capture me on page one, I'm out. Yeah. That's and and you have yeah. until you know whatever the number of lines of text that is. And mm-hmm. and I will I will stop at page one. And, you know, in like ninety percent of books, he stops on page one, and and you have to survive the first page test. What do you have a technique for entering the story and bringing the reader in and grabbing them? Yeah. So I always want. So I don't have a formula. Yeah. And I have to tell you, there is this kind of subculture, at least in my genre of of authors. Uh, and so you're going to have a buddy of mine on. I don't think you've had him on yet, Jack Carr. He's coming on coming in up. soon. Yeah, he's yeah. I'm looking okay. forward to that. 
So, so Jack is as uh, is doing something that has been done. Uh, other authors have done it. The International Thriller Writers Association started doing this several years ago, where. Uh, they ask you to submit your worst Amazon review. So Jack is <laughs> is he'll 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 do it on his uh, on his podcast and stuff. He'll read his worst reviews and um, and it's 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 very funny. Um, I, so this is to say I don't have a formula and it always makes me laugh when people are like Thor's got a formula. No, I don't have a formula. I have mm-hmm. certain things that are hallmarks of my books. And to answer your question, uh, one of those hallmarks is. The action starts on page one. Yeah. Always. Always. If you don't start with something, if you don't grab people by the throat right away, I agree with Imus. And by the way, I miss that crusty old son of a bitch. Like I cannot <laughs> tell you. I used to have to have an EpiPen off set because I would laugh so hard that I might just like close up my throat and not be able to breathe and need to just jam myself with that thing. Be I that was one of my favorite shows to do was Don's. Yeah. And he at one point we had a fight over politics, like a good natured back and forth. <laughs> and he threatened to come down to Nashville where I live now and kick my ass. And I said, <laughs> and who's going to carry your oxygen tank for you? <laughs> and he laughed. And I mean, that guy was and you know, him, you knew him. I mean, he was just yeah. so much fun and such a great patron uh, of writers. I yeah. mean, he loved having authors. I, on. And I love that. Yeah. I, 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 I always wonder, you know, I see Mike Lupica writing with James Patterson and Lupica was one of Imus's favorite, you know, loved his sports writing and all this kind of stuff. Just a, just a great, great guy. I, I always have a lot of love in my heart for people who love to read. I think, I think it is the one thing that we can all, it is a universal language, right? Reading. It doesn't yeah. matter where you're from, how you vote, how much money you have, what you do for a living, what color you are, how many are you married, divorced. What, it doesn't matter. If you have a love of books, that's a shared language. You can talk with people totally, about books. Totally. I, I, and it's great to have more. I mean, that's what I'm hoping this show will be as a platform to have writers connect with readers. It's a it's a great thing. But one of the reasons I asked that question was with reading, uh, Rising Tiger, reading Rising Tiger, it starts out, as you say, in the, I mean, there's this huge battle in the in the on the india china border yeah, it's a going true on story too it really happened is that right oh gosh and so it's like it reminds that you know the expression in media race which means like in the middle of things where how how yeah. homer would start the iliad or the odyssey and you start mm-hmm. out and you're you're reading it's like right in the middle of the trojan war so as the reader like oh my gosh there's this crazy war going on on page one and then the extra layer is and and why like why is this war going on and uh, that's a great sort of technique to to bring readers in and grab them with action, you know, right away on page one. So I, yeah, I love the I, way Rising Tiger started out. Well, I'm I'm glad you did because when I had read about that, it had happened three summers ago, and I said, "How could you not open a book with this incredible scene where Chinese troops sneak across the border in the Himalayas into mm-hmm. India?" But there's this gentleman's agreement between the two nations that there are no guns allowed there. So the Chinese, it was like Dawn of the Dead, or better yet, Walking Dead. They've they've made all these weapons like baseball bats wrapped with like Nagin's baseball bat wrapped mm-hmm. with barbed wire. Yeah. Uh, like road uh, warrior re- stuff. Yeah, road warrior. Exactly. Pieces of re- uh, spiked uh, pieces of iron and stuff. I mean, it was insane. And I said, how could you not start the book with this? 
because the stakes are so high and you see this bloody mm. battle between two military, two two nations' militaries, where it's all hand-to-hand medieval combat. I mean, when I yeah. read it, I couldn't even believe it was true. So yeah, that was a, that was a lot of fun to open with that scene. Cool. By the way, I'm I'm loving the cocktail. This I'm going to be good. I'm going to be hammered by the end of the uh, by the end of the interview here. And I, speaking of like good lifestyle and getting drunk, you're living in Nashville, which is a great town, great music, great yeah. restaurants, yep. and the writing life is is clearly agreeing with you. And as evidence of that, I submit to you that I have your latest Rising Tiger here, and I also have a first edition of The Lions of Lucerne. The reason I I know the writing lifestyle is agreeing with you if you look at the author photo of these two it appears you haven't aged a day you have like <laughs> it's a all the Dick trips Clark. to switzerland <laughs> i'm helping the gdp of that country in fact now they just have a little key they put in the back of my head and they just tighten the key <laughs> it makes the uh makes the work for the plastic surgeon no I, well it's 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 very nice and that's uh, listen i hate getting author photos done to be honest with you i hate it i hate because it's got to go in front of a committee my agent my editor i hate yeah. having them done so the picture that's on rising tiger is several years old i think that's 2015 i haven't had one done since then all right and well i'm looking at you right now and you, you look uh you look like a young man but i oh, so uh, connected to that question i know in 2020 you dabbled with a presidential run i believe maybe as an independent but in 2024 could there be a run for the white house by brad thor i don't think i don't think so i don't think so no, we're we're at a place politically that is uh, no. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no. life is too. And that Why wasn't an independent it? run. You're... I wanted to run within my former party, which is the Republican Party. I wanted mm-hmm. to run, and I wanted to get on the debate stage with Donald Trump and actually talk about substantive issues uh, that that used to be uh, important to the party. And you know, the party decided. They 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 wouldn't have any platform. I mean, that's I think that's the first time in the Republican Party's uh, history that that last general election that they didn't have a platform. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so no, I I have no I have I have no interest in in doing that ever again. Yeah, life is good in Nashville. You don't need to you don't need to oh, yeah. put yourself and your family. I mean, my God, if you make yeah. a political run, your whole family is basically running. Any update on Scott Harvath and book to film? Yeah. So I joke, we've done so many options in Hollywood. I, I joke that in a town filled with so many beautiful people, I've kissed every frog uh, <laughs> in that town and I could write a book on all the twists and turns in Hollywood. Um, so yet yeah, we've got a, and this is what to a certain degree bugs me is that we're now at a studio. We've got probably one of the most massive teams if I told you the people that were involved with this, you'd be like, I've seen everything that guy's done. I've seen everything that guy's done. That director is freaking amazing. The, the cast and is set? You, you've got- you No, know, cast cast is not set. It's all the all the other people, the director, mm-hmm. the showrunner. So we're looking at doing television. Uh, mm-hmm. The director's coming over. The director has never done TV before. Massive uh, action director. This will be the first TV project he does. Everybody's been chasing him to get him to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the showrunner is amazing. The writers are incredible. The producers are freaking- st- out of this world so everybody's great but the studio gets to control when the press release goes out okay so i'm not allowed to say so it's kind of locked and loaded but you haven't announced yet well and i you know what i i I was honest with them i said listen guys i've got a new book that's coming out in july and i'll be doing 
you know, shows like Doug's and Today Show and other places all over the place. And I don't want to get asked this question and not be able to answer it. I want mm-hmm. us to have the project in place so that we can say, you know, they, they want to get it with whoever it's going to be, whether that's going to be Apple or whether that's going to be Netflix or mm-hmm. Amazon, wherever it's going to land. They want that piece in place before they announce it. Uh, I, 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 I can't tell them how to do their business. I would think it'd be a lot easier to get those things if you announced this incredible oh, there'll be a huge buzz team. about it. I can't wait for this. It is. It, it's going to be massive, massive news. And yeah. so um, I'm I'm very excited about it. And we've got a big meeting. Actually, I get to see the final uh, presentation uh, in a couple of days. So get, two, uh, two questions on this. Yeah. One yeah. is, will you be doing any of the writing or, or overseeing the yeah. writing or working? It? And yeah. the second no, no, I'll is- be a, I'll be a writer on it. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, great. And um, the second is, and you may not be able to answer this because you, you may be in the middle of casting, but who is there anyone that you vision, uh, envision it? Like, like Lee Child, when he was here, he said in the early days of writing the, the Jack Reacher books, he pictured Howie Long- as Reacher. Mm-hmm. And I think the current guy actually looks a bit like Howie Long. But is there, can you talk about casting or who you picture as Harvath? Yeah. So I, so I have a certain image in mind. And, you know, I've always thought Chris Hemsworth would make a great Harvath. Mm-hmm. And now with having done his series that's on Disney plus unlimited where he had his genes tested and found that he has like kind of double indicators for dementia. He stepped back. So I don't know if Hemsworth is going to even be in the running for something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there've been a lot of people, I mean, early on, like way back in the beginning, 20 years ago, I loved Guy Pierce. I thought Guy Pierce was this oh, yeah. great actor. Yeah. I thought Guy Pierce could really carry off Harvath had we done it 20 years ago. Um, <clears throat> but there's a lot of people I like, um, I've got people who are known and unknown. Like I think Jensen Ackles uh, is a great actor who's in Supernatural. I think Jensen Ackles would be a fantastic Harvath. I think Jensen Ackles is good looking. He's super smart. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor. That's that's the thing. You've got to be – you. It, it, it has to be somebody who's intelligent, somebody who's really, really bright. So Hemsworth's a really bright guy. Jensen Ackles is a really bright guy. Um so that's kind of the the way I liked Chris Evans for a while, but then Chris Evans went over and was the bad guy in Mark Greeny's stuff on Netflix and the gray man. Uh, so I don't know what that does. I, mm-hmm. you know, if he's, he's done, I've always loved Chris Pine. Chris Pine he's did the Kevin actor. Costner, yeah. Jack Ryan stuff, thing, yeah. but Chris Pine is Chris Pine's fantastic. And, you know, so you never know what the actors themselves are looking for at the time and mm-hmm. who like, I don't know who my director's got in mind. I mean, that's the next thing. We right, do the my God, pitch. I'm just noticing you've covered all three of the Chris's. Like, you've got them all. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Chris all... Evans, Chris Pine. Yeah, Chris Evans. Yeah, right. These guys uh, have, like, a Twitter competition about who's the coolest Chris in a good-natured way, I think. Yeah. So they're all, yeah. They're no, all they're, vying they're for They're all Harvath. terrific. We've got, we've got a lot of – so it is an embarrassment of riches at yeah. this point to do a television series because you've got – Film actors, big film actors that are like, yeah, I'll do a series because the scheduling and all that kind of stuff works for them. Um, so I really I am hoping that we we are going to be moving to that stage soon. Mm-hmm. And listen, those are just my off the cuff ideas. I don't know who the director's interested in. I don't know who our showrunner's interested in. I, I don't know about the producers. So there could be there could be somebody else there. But at least when I say Jensen Ackles from Supernatural, Chris Hemsworth, that starts giving you kind of a kind of an idea of yeah. of where I am in yeah. that in that space. Oh, that's great. exciting news. Congratulations. 
Um, oh, yeah, thank and you. I can't wait to see it. The, the Harvest, it has to come to screen. It's just, it's all so good. All right, so we're on to the lightning round of questions to wrap all the right, show. All right, here we go. All right, so lightning round for Brad Thor. Favorite book as a kid? You know what? I, I grabbed all my parents' books. Uh, is So I read the Hardy Boys books. Mm-hmm. I was a big, I, I love, there were so many books around the Black Stallion. I loved horses when I was a kid. And so I read a lot of those books. But probably too young, I started grabbing my parents' thrillers. So Frederick Forsyth, uh, John Le Carre, Tom Clancy, and I devoured those at probably way too young an age. So there isn't one, like if I had to go back, I read it as a kid, but I appreciated it more rereading it as an adult, The Count of Monte Cristo, because I think that's from, I I lived in France for a little while and went to school over there. And I was told that that was like the original cliffhanger, that it was serialized for a French newspaper. So it was a chapter a week in the newspaper to encourage you to buy like that next weekend's edition. And so that that was the original, you know, I didn't know that. So each chapter had to end with a, you got to find out what happens next. Yeah. You got to buy the next edition of the Mm -hmm. paper or whatever that allegedly is what I was told going to school uh, in Paris. But, uh, but yeah, I was a big fan of the Count of Monte Cristo. Great book. All right. Book or books you're reading now. So, as I told you, I've let, let's talk about what I finished. I just because I've always got like six books going. I just finished uh, the uh, uh, the book on Anthony Bourdain, uh, the most recent one, which was a Simon and Schuster book. Uh, just came out in the last month. Uh, it was really interesting uh, to know more about him. So, as somebody who was a travel show host, to watch what he did with his travel show and all this kind of stuff, and see the behind the scenes thing, the guy had a rough life. The guy, you know. Yeah. He, wasn't paying his taxes, wasn't paying his credit card bills, wasn't paying his landlord. I mean, this is not a successful guy. Uh, and he wrote a book that kind of changed everything for him. It was a fascinating book. Uh, what I am reading now that I love is Arthur Brooks from Strength to Strength. Uh, this book is fabulous. And it's all about how your brain changes uh kind of as you get to that second half of your life in the midlife and about how too many people hang with their old careers and don't find new careers and why that might not be the best idea that having a change in your 40s or 50s can actually be the best thing career-wise for you. Love that book. And then the other book, which is uh, nonfiction because I'm still working on my fiction. So I only read nonfiction when I'm at work on fiction because I don't want anybody's voice slipping in into the great emptiness this book is amazing and it's about the exploration of greenland uh on the eastern side by 1930 it was one of the most unexplored places on the planet and a weather station was being set up there they ran low on supply supplies had to leave one person behind and the guy leading the expedition was 23 years old this guy watkins this thing reads like an action movie so this from Arthur's book, Arthur Brooks from Strength to Strength on Finding Happiness is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He used to be the head of a think tank in D.C. called AEI. His life story is fantastic. He's one of the most optimistic, upbeat, positive people I've ever encountered. Uh, and then Into the Great Emptiness. So from happiness, strength to strength, into the great <laughs> emptiness. But I purposely pulled these because I knew you were going to ask me about those. And I'm loving both of these books right I, now. That was a great sales pitch. I'm going to get both of those books. That sounds amazing. 
They're fabulous. They're really, really good. And if they do not make uh, a movie out of Into the Great Emptiness, which Krakauer even raved about, mm-hmm. uh, just really, really raved about it, uh, the Hollywood's making a big mistake. I think a movie I love that that whole book. narrative nonfiction thing. Like, I guess Eric Larson is sort of the king of that now. Oh, but, he's you know, my favorite. I he, he's love terrific, Eric. right? And, and that narrative nonfiction genre can be so good. I, I, look, it's the novel can do all everything as well. I mean, you you write so much information that's real and when i'm reading your books i'm like i'm learning about india pakistan and china and russia right now like i just know you have such command of the page i know that's happening that i'm pulling real knowledge out so the novel can also do it but narrative nonfiction is a terrific genre and by the way, so my one of my favorite all-time nonfiction books is In the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson. Right, the World War II uh, one. But like absolutely the Nazi perfect. One, right? yeah. yeah, about how no American wanted the job to be the ambassador to Germany in mm-hmm. Berlin, and they grabbed this professor out of the University of Chicago, which is a Chicago guy. I loved reading this guy's story and about how his very a very, very interesting daughter kind of got drawn in by a Soviet agent and all this kind of stuff. But In the Garden of Beasts is great. And my editor's husband uh, was the editor of that book. Oh my and God. It is so wait, is only... Emily Bessler is, is your editor, right? Yeah. 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 You, you've been with so SNS her, the whole way, but have you been with the her whole, the whole way? Yeah, with Emily since book one. Yeah. And her husband, John Glussman, was the editor for In the Garden of Beasts, and it's mm-hmm. perfect. There isn't one mistake there isn't one typo. There's not one incorrect use of a word. And she said, well, that's because Eric Larson's such a good writer and there was such a good copy editor <laughs> on the book. She refuses to give John the credit. Oh, she, she's credit. very generous. I mean, I know he's a journalist by trade, so I'm sure he's pretty good, but that's that's being very generous with the credit too, because as writers, we know awesome. we don't yeah, get it right. it's so hard. Always. It's so hard. All right. So even a big star like you has early on had a, a bit of a clunker of a book event. So what's the least attended book event you've ever had? So uh, my least attended was actually one of my all-time best. And I'll tell you why. Okay. So I got booked somewhere in a town that was very pro sports. And it was like the night on TV of like, finals (laughs) was like the last night you'd want to be out hosting a public event because everybody's home or at a sports bar watching you know basketball on tv and this is not the time that you want to be trying to pull people away from their sets so it was maybe the least attended very early on in my career and odd because my events had always been very well attended because people knew me from TV. They came to see me because I came into their living rooms, all this kind of stuff. But it was one of the best because I realized that if you're Aerosmith and you walk out on stage and the entire stadium is not sold out, if there are 6,000 empty seats, that's not the fault of the 74,000 other people who are there. And you'd better give those 74,000 people an 80,000 full of uh, seats filled performance, Mm -hmm. right? So if you get two people, you get three people, you give them your all. You do not shortchange them. You don't blame them because, you know, 200 more people didn't show up. And then if you're smart, you take care of them. You have a good thing. They walk away saying, wow, that guy's awesome. And then go work the room, go meet the sales associates there so that they want to say, oh, this guy came in, he did a signing here. He was so charming. He came around and met all of us. And now they want to hand sell your book to their customers. 
So, you know, events that happen only are colored to the extent that you choose to color them and they are colored with the colors that you choose to give them. Mm-hmm. So that was a that was one of the best lessons I ever learned early on in my career. And that's great. You know, and it's it's humbling to hang on to those experiences too, you know, as as I mean now people are around the corner and they've if they want to see you, they've got to line up and hope they get in and buy the book to get in and all that kind of stuff, but it's it's a good thing to hang on to those early day uh experiences. All right, so now on to Harvath a little bit. Mhm. Would Scott Harvath ever enter politics? Would he would he sign on? Would he run for anything or would he accept a, an appointment to the cabinet or something um, like that? No, not not if there was somebody else that could take it. I don't I I think part of the what's interesting about Harvath is he's already vis-a-vis the agency he already works at. They are trying to pull him out of the field. And mm-hmm. Harvath has an interesting it's not a character defect, but he has an interesting character trait in that he doesn't think anybody else can do his job as well as he's doing it. So he really should be developing like a farm team, developing the next generation of spies and covert operatives to come up behind him. But he doesn't believe the nation's problems are only getting more dangerous and more extreme. And so he can't remove himself from the, the field. And there's an acronym for this uh, with a lot of the guys that I know that that go do this stuff. And they say, there's nothing worse than being a former, well, F-A-G, meaning former action guy. There's nothing mm-hmm. worse than that. Mm-hmm. You, It is very hard once you've built a lifestyle around kicking indoors and shooting bad guys in the face and hunting down you know, the, the most evil of the evil. It's really hard to just stop. Uh, because it takes a lot of strength and courage and fortitude to be out there and facing death uh, on behalf of your country on a daily, sometimes hourly basis to get what needs to be done, done. So I don't Mm -hmm. see Harvath, I don't see him, let me put it this way, I don't see him seeking out politics, uh, but if something crazy happened where like they're, you're the only person we could put in this position and you have a unique skill set and here's where it would serve and why it would serve the country. And it's a calling to do your duty in that case. Yes, he would do it, but this would not be a personal choice for him absent uh, a a need to protect the country to do it. Now you, you age Harvath as you age though. So in, in 20 years from now, I did, I stopped. Oh, you stopped. I stopped. I slowed down. So every time you pick up the book, it's like, man, this guy can't catch his breath. It's another operation. He just opened a beer and they're calling him. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We get four or five books in here. So uh, otherwise, you know, there'd have to be like a Harvath Jr. from some tryst in Moscow, like 10 years ago, because only Harvath Jr. could, you know, go in the field if he steps out of the field. He's got people on his team now, like he's got, uh, one named Chase Palmer, who was the youngest ever uh, person to get into Delta Force that's on the team that's younger, that's got that potential to kind mm-hmm. of spin off. Uh, and then there's uh, also Sloan Ashby, who was a highly successful uh, soldier, uh, but got exposed in the media. And uh, there was a price on her head and she got pulled back from Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. They wouldn't let her go fight because there was a price on her head and it really pissed her off. She was she was bagging more bad guys than a lot of the guys in her unit uh, were. So I've got those younger characters that could take over. So it'll be interesting to see yeah. what we do. You know, I'm on book two of a four book contract. We'll see what the future looks like All as right. far as where I go with the characters. Staying on the Harvath theme, mm-hmm. Scott Harvath and Jack Reacher Enter mm-hmm. a steel cage MMA bout. Who walks right. out? Harvath. Absolutely. <laughs> Every time. Every Twice time. Twice on Sunday. <laughs> All right. And the early show and the matinee on Sunday. Yeah. All right. Top mm-hmm. few writers who have influenced your writing. 
So I'll go back and mention the ones uh, that I've mentioned already. Uh, stealing Le from my parents, Clancy, uh, mm-hmm. Freddie Forsyth, those guys, uh, Crichton, uh, who I think yeah. is absolutely fantastic. Nelson DeMille is another one. And, um, you know, uh, those those were ones that I read a ton of and loved. And I was a reader before I was a writer, and I will be a reader long after I'm done being a writer. So I love reading. And so I'm very thankful to those people in the in the genre that came uh, before me. Um, same. And I, you know, I should have made more note of this when you said it, but I find it interesting that you read when you're writing your fiction and adding pages on the pile, you read nonfiction, not yeah. not fiction. I think that's interesting. And I'm kind of the same way. Last question for the great Brad Thor. One piece of good advice for the listeners. One piece of good advice for the listeners. So, you know, it's a piece of advice that I got from my mom, and I didn't realize that it was actually the purest form of stoicism, which I've become a huge fan of. I was kind of dipping my toe to stoicism pre you know, March 13th, 2020, when uh, the shutdown happened and COVID was everywhere. Uh, But my mom used to always say, and I say this to my kids, and I love it because like I said, it's quintessential stoicism, which is you cannot always choose the situation that you find yourself in, but you can choose how you react to it. Mm -hmm. So basically things that are happening in the world, as we were saying before with colors, it only has the power that you give it. It only is, it is good or it isn't good. There's an old, there's an old story and I'm going to butcher it. I think it's an old Chinese fable about a guy that uh, his prize stallion runs away and his neighbors are like, oh, that sucks, dude. We're all poor around here, but you had the nicest horse. Now your horse is gone. That's terrible. He says, well, terrible, not terrible. Who knows? And then the horse comes back four days later, leading like 50 other horses. And they're like, oh my God, how that's fantastic. And then uh, his son gets up to break one of those new horses, gets on a horseback and his son gets thrown and the son's arm gets broken. And this is a son that helps around the Chinese farm and all this kind of stuff. And the neighbors go, oh man, that sucks. Your son was trying to break that horse, fell off, broke his arm. That's really terrible. And the farmer goes, terrible, not terrible. Who knows? And then the next day, the Chinese military comes through and they're conscripting people. They're taking people away to go fight. They don't take his son because he's got a broken arm. So, you know, all these things we just we just don't know. We have but we have tremendous power to decide to make a conscious decision of how we're going to interpret the events that come our way. Terrible, not terrible. Who's to say? Well, actually, we are. We can make that decision. So I, I, I've i always believed there's no such thing as a problem without a gift for you in its hands. And we, you know, we need to do as Thomas Jefferson said, take life by the smooth handle that, you know, 80 percent, 90 percent of what we worry about never comes to be. Yeah. So be on the <laughs> always look on the bright side of life to quote Monty Python. I love that. It, very empowering. Yeah. I love it. Brad, thank you so much for coming on. What a pleasure. You're welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me, Doug. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all-new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.